Ergon's purpose has always been to provide quality specialty oil products you can depend on. As a family-owned business, we've been able to reinvest an average of 93% of our earnings over the years back into our facilities, our people and communities, and our industry. Throughout the chaos of this past year, these sustainable business practices, along with the diversity of our operations and world-class employees, have allowed us to stay steady and stable. Ergon, united by service, driven by solutions. Welcome to Lube Trends. We've got a great session today with UKLA's David Wright, who's going to be talking about the challenges members are facing in the UK with trade, with Brexit, with COVID-19. Thanks for joining us for a great conversation. This is Holly Alfano, CEO of ILMA, and we're very fortunate to have with us today David Wright of UKLA. David, maybe we'll start this off by talking a little bit about UKLA and its mission and how it's structured. Thank you, Holly, and thanks very much for inviting me along to be part of your podcast this afternoon. So UKLA is the United Kingdom Lubricants Association. We've been around since about 1921 in the UK. We first came into being when government asked various lubricant companies to work together regionally and nationally after the First World War to ensure there was a sufficient supply of lubricants across the country. And since that time, we merged in 2004 with an organization called the UK Delegation to the UEIL, which is the European Lubricants Association. And since that time, we took a very much an outward-focused and European-facing front to our activities in the country. In terms of team, we're based in a little place called Chesham, which is about 15 miles out to the west of London at the end of the tube line. We've got only a small team of about four or five working in the organization. And I've been with the company since about November 2014. We have various different people work on different aspects of our company. So we have one person looking after training and events, two people working on our magazine Lube, which goes out to about 25,000 people six times a year and our bookkeeper as well in support. So it's a small team. We work to a board of directors of 15. And in the UK, we have about 105 members. And there are roughly 250 companies involved in some activity regarding lubricants, whether it's blending, manufacturing, marketing, or supporting through packaging and transportation and logistics activities. Yeah, I I actually read recently uh, one of your letters that you wrote. And in it, you said that The UK is the second largest market for petrochemicals in Europe with a 15% market share. And you said that the market volume is equally split between automotive and industrial applications. Does that reflect the membership of UKLA? That's a good question. We are the second largest market in Europe. We're behind that of Germany. Germany's market is about 860,000 metric tons a year. We sit at about 600,000 metric tons a year. And we're split roughly 50-50. Germany has a larger industrial base, so it's split roughly 38% automotive and 62% industrial. So although we're smaller in overall sizes, we're only about 25,000 metric tons behind the market leader in Europe, Germany. In terms of the split of our activities after that, we have a special metalworking fluid product stewardship group, as I believe you do at ILMA, and we have 18 companies who signed up to that um, out of 105 companies. So a lot of our companies will offer metalworking, industrial, and automotive products across a wide range of uh, of lubricant finished goods. So, for example, 
um, a Miller's, a Morris, lubricant companies will offer that as part of their portfolio of products and services. But in terms of specific metalworking fluid companies, it's about 18 in the UK. And obviously, the additive companies, the big guns like Afton, Chevron Aronite, Infinium Lubrizol, offer additives across the range as well. So it doesn't quite accurately reflect the proportions of how the market breaks down, because we have various companies who straddle more than one market sector or area. Sure. I guess that's similar, almost very similar to that in terms of membership companies having a pretty broad range of products that they offer. You know, it's been over a year now that we've been living in the COVID world. And I know we're all weary of that. Um, How has that affected your members? We're finding it tough. Our second lockdown is worse than the first, I think, because we, we locked down in January and we're now coming out of it. So by the 8th of March, our schools will get back. We will pursue the end of a national lockdown by, I think it's roughly the 21st of June, and we'll allow international air travel from that time. But as you said, it's been going on since March last year. We managed to creep in a conference on women in the lubricants industry early March before we locked down completely on the 25th of March in the UK. And despite a, a brief respite, in August over the summer period and over Christmas. We've pretty much been continually locked down over the whole of the period. Now, at the start, there was a a ramping up of demand from our customers for lubricants because people knew they were going to lock down. They wanted to stock up to ensure shortage of, sorry, to ensure supply was uh, maintained during, during the first lockdown period. So the first few months were good for our members. We did about 30 to 40% over what we'd expect in that first quarter. During from April to about September, the UK government started to curtail activities. Non-essential retail was stopped. Our annual, what we call MOT testing program of cars undertaken by government was curtailed as well. So that really knocked out the service fill market in the automotive sector. Initial fill was also impacted because car production plants shut down. And so over that period, a lot of lubricant market demand was just suspended in time, unfortunately. But coming out of that in September, when we had a brief respite to the lockdown, lubricant demand in the marketplace shot up again. And so what we found was that a lot of people have put off their decision to replace their car, to buy new consumer white goods. They could tell they're traveling at the time as well. But they kicked up again in September, October, November. So overall, although the economy was down in 2020 by about 10%, the lubricant market in the UK was down by only about 4%. We did a lot of catching up to do over that period. January this year is tough. In terms of automotive production, we're down about 25% year on year. And the future of some car plants, because the automotive market is consolidating in future as well. We see um, the PSA group merging with Fiat Chrysler, rationalizing their car plants across Europe. There are question marks over automotive production plants in the UK, for example, Vauxhall's old plant at Ellesmere Port, which produces the Astra car. And so in future, I think it's, it's this rationalization program will only get worse. But overall, mm. the market wasn't too bad for us last year. And certainly this year, at the end of Brexit, we kicked up and the automotive market and the industrial market for lubricants and metalworking as well is quite buoyant and quite stable. So I'm glad to hear that the business environment is improving, it sounds like that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. 
In addition to COVID, of course, there's Brexit, which is a whole different set of complications for business. How's that going? Where do you start with Brexit? So at the end of December last year, we completed the end of the transition period. So on the 1st of January this year, we became a truly independent country, no longer following the rules of the European Union. And that meant eventually uh, transitioning to our own set of rules, regulations and laws over time. But at the moment, we've adopted pretty much wholesale all of the European rules and regulations into UK law. And that's happened over the last uh, couple of years now. In terms of Brexit, we have uh, initial physical issues of logistics. So come the 1st of January, our short straight crossing between England and mainland France and Europe became quite congested. Although a lot of our members had stocked up on goods over the three months prior to the end of the transition period in December, there were still delays at the border. And at the worst, in the first week in January, there was a two-day delay getting products shipped across the 14 miles of the English Channel to France. And that was a problem for us. There are still problems or teething problems at the moment. It's taken about seven minutes to... When we move products across the border now, they are subject to inspection. And so we have borders and customs controls, even though we have a free trade agreement in place with the European Union. So the issue for us now is that products are taking seven times as long to cross the border as they were when we were part of the European Union. That's causing a problem. And we also have paperwork to complete, customs checks to get through, um, and, and borders, to circum to, uh, borders to cross. So some of our consignments now are being subject by the import-export agents to a Brexit charge for customs processing time. Now, that could be the time to fill the documentation in, and it varies between £65 and £100 per consignment. That was something we weren't expecting. On top of that, there are some teething problems about the rules of origin regarding international trade. So we have a free trade agreement with the European Union regarding products which originate in the UK and those which originate in the EU. But when you're blending a mixture of products, for example, base oil from North America with additives from mainland Europe and shipping that back into mainland Europe, there's questions about the origin of the products that you're exporting into the European Union. So we have an issue at the moment whereby we have chemical chapters within the tariff classification code and we mix certain amounts of products together, but we have limits on what we can and what we can't do with those products before they're exported. There's something called MaxNom, which is a maximum percentage of non-originated material we can use in the blending of our finished lubricants before we can export that to the UK to the EU as a UK originated product. So they're causing us some problems. There's also things you can and you can't do with products in terms of how you blend them together, mix them together, and what chemical reactions you perform to produce a finished lubricant which goes over to the European Union. So that's quite a complex area we're still getting to grips with. The other issue we found recently is that HMRC, our tax and revenue government department, has asked various importers to pay excise duty on lubricants, which wasn't the case before January of this year. Now, this applies only to additives in the classification code 3811, but it does mean that certain European countries are paying duty or excise duty on their exports to the UK, even though we're not paying duty 
on the exports of our goods into the EU. Now, that's an anomaly in the system, and it's something we're working very close with UK authorities to overcome. Because in the UK, unlike Germany or Italy, we don't levy excise duty on lubricants, although they do in some of the European countries. And there's also the whole other issue of reach, which I know is goes far beyond the UK. But um, in terms of reach, we used to be compliant with the EU reach regulation, and we used to register and have our products pre-authorized by the European Chemicals Agency in Helsinki before they were placed on the market. Since the 1st of January, we've set up our own independent reach regulation with our health and safety executive for England and Wales and Scotland. And we're re-registering our products with the health and safety executive to place them on the marketplace in the UK. Now, the issue with that is that companies like BASF have spent a lot of money registering products with the EU under EU reach. They spend about £75 million registering the substances. The UK system is based on the EU system. And the fees you pay to the UK under UK reach are the same as you pay for EU reach under ECHA. So the problem there is that the EU as a market is is a lot bigger than the UK as a market. So your companies are being asked to pay 100% of the costs of re-registering their substances with the UK, but for a market which is 15% of the size of uh, the EU. And that's a problem. So BASF, I mentioned earlier, £75 million they've spent with the EU. They're going to have to spend another £10 million with the HSC on registration fees and another £50 million on developing the dossiers of data needed to underpin these registrations. So we are lobbying hard with government that we don't need every single individual data dossier which supports an EU registration in the UK. We need to have a buy on certain products which have already been placed on the EU market successfully over many years. And the registration fees need to reflect the, the fact that the size of the UK market is very much smaller than that of the EU. So that's something we're working with them at the moment. The Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs leads on that. You've been talking about the shift in chemical regulation. And of course, that was effective January 1st, 2021, correct? Yep, that's it. Yes. And so companies in the UK followed EU reach, and now they fall under UK reach, except for Northern Ireland. How is that affecting trade? Northern Ireland is is an interesting case, because although Northern Ireland's part of the United Kingdom, the Northern Ireland Protocol treats the island of Ireland as a single entity. So there is a, a borderless customs point across Ireland, north and south. And so Northern Ireland continues to follow EU reach regulations. Under the unfettered access principle underpinning the United Kingdom, goods arriving in Northern Ireland can be placed on the rest of the UK, England, Scotland and Wales, just by a short form notification to the English regulator, English and Welsh regulator, the health and safety executive. They don't need to re-register their chemicals with the HSE. So there is a border down the Irish Sea, effectively, between England, Wales and Scotland Uh, forming part of Great Britain, and Northern Ireland forming part of the United Kingdom. And that's upset quite a few people, certainly in Northern Ireland, on the loyalist side, to such an extent now that they've stopped inspecting goods in Northern Ireland which come in from the EU because there is agitation in Northern Ireland, the fact that there is this separation between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, and that's causing 
uh, some concern politically. So in terms of reach, there's the added complication that reach is defined as an environmental matter or issue under UK law. So under our devolution, where we set up assemblies in Wales and a parliament in Northern Ireland, environmental matters were devolved to the four nations. So the complication of that is that because reach is seen as an environmental matter, the four nations can go their own way in reach and future if they wanted to. And that would be an absolute nightmare for UK businesses if we suddenly had a, a Northern Ireland reach, a Scottish reach, a Welsh reach, an English reach. So that wasn't thought through when the Devolution Act went through Parliament. But reach is certainly an area of considerable concern for some of our members. We want to work to one set of principles, one regulation, as we do with CLP, which is based on the United Nations GIST program, which is very well understood uh, and has been applied over many years in the UK. That makes sense. You know, about three years ago, uh, the UK issued a 25-year environmental plan. And recently, you wrote in, about that in a letter to the House of Lords in London. In that plan, the UK set a goal of being the global leader in environmental matters. How do, you, how do your members see this? And how does it affect trade for companies that want to do business in the UK? So the 25-year environmental plan really set the tone for government's approach to natural resources. Effectively, it was a natural resources plan. It didn't include the political environment, didn't include the regulatory environment or the legal environment. It looked at clean air, clean water, and how we treated the natural environment of the country. So that's the first thing to mention. It wasn't a comprehensive environmental plan. The aim of the plan was to leave the environment in a better condition for the next generation than this generation had inherited it from the previous generation. And that's a, a very worthy uh, cause. The issue with the environmental plan was that the UK set its sights on being, as you said, um, a global leader and world champion on environmental matters. And the problem with that is that if it wants to go further, faster than other nations or regions, then that allows the prospect of diverging from existing regulations. So, for example, if the UK wanted to do something beyond reach and implement a set of regulations which are more stringent in future, those regulations might not be seen as valid or acceptable by the European Union, for example. And then we'd be working to multiple regulations which had no recognition in other parts of the world. That's the problem with the environmental plan. But at its heart, the aims and objectives of the plan are the right ones. We want to recycle more of our plastic packaging. We want to move away from single-use plastics on um, packaging uh, and waste, reduce our waste over time, recycle more of what we have, and make the environment effectively more sustainable and the political and legal environment as well. And similar initiatives here in the U.S. So in terms of the smaller businesses in your membership, what are some of the challenges that they're dealing with in this era, new era of regulation? So regulation has got to be reasonable and proportionate for all of our businesses. With smaller businesses, it becomes more expensive if the cost of meeting those regulations are the same as it is for larger companies. So on REACH, for example, a lot of small companies were asked to work together in consortiums, we called CIFs, to register products with the European Chemicals Agency, ECHA, in order to have those products authorized for use in the European market. So small businesses spend a lot of their time chasing sales 
making the sale and chasing the invoice. And the main focus for them is survival and growth. So succession planning, regulatory compliance is a secondary consideration to the core task they've got of just keeping themselves or keeping their head above water on a day-to-day basis. A lot of our members are smaller businesses. In terms of the marketplace in the UK, about 60% of the market is given over to the majors, the likes of Eurex on Mobiles and Shells. The smaller businesses account for 40% of the marketplace overall. The benefit of smaller businesses is they can look at niche products or areas which are uneconomic for some larger oil companies because their overheads traditionally are lower. But regulatory compliance is, uh, is a key issue. And over time, the regulatory burden has increased. But the small businesses know and understand what a REACH regulation is and what it looks like and how to comply with it. They understand about the classification of labeling and packaging regulation, which we've adopted wholesale from the EU, as we have with the Biocides Product Regulation, BPR, and PIC, or Prior Informed Consent. So to create an environment, um, a known environment for small businesses, which is gives them certainty and confidence in trading with companies within the UK and with their European counterparts is paramount to the importance and success of small businesses in the future in the UK. You know, ILMA and UKLA have had a good partnership over the years, and I always try to think about how we can be more effective serving our members, especially going into the post-COVID era. What, what do you think we could do to accomplish that? I think the challenges we face in the future are the same across the pond. So we have the end of the internal combustion engine coming along in 2030 by UK government. We've got challenges in transitioning away from unsustainable energy or fuel sources. But we see lubricants very much part of the solution in reducing friction and enabling applications which conserve energy and conserve resources for the benefits of future generations overall. So we think that the challenges faced by ourselves and by Ilma are the same. The environmental issues that we face as a society are very similar. And so there might, I think there is an opportunity for our members who work across both regions and both countries and continents um, to work together with a similarly a strong voice um, and a single focus in terms of helping our members transition to a new environment over time and a future vision of the world which is more sustainable and more environmentally friendly for the benefit of all of our children eventually. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really, uh, it's a great discussion. And I think that our members and your members hopefully will uh, learn a lot from from this. And I really appreciate uh, your participation today. Holly, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you in a physical world once the lockdowns end on both sides of the uh, Atlantic. I hope that hope that's really soon. Thanks for tuning in to Lube Trends, the official podcast of the Independent Lubricant Manufacturers Association. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future Lube Trends topics, or if you'd like to be a guest on the Lube Trends podcast, contact us at lubetrends at ilma.org. I'm Holly Alfano, CEO of Ilma. Thank you for listening. Ergon's purpose has always been to provide quality specialty oil products you can depend on. As a family-owned business, we've been able to reinvest an average of 93% of our earnings over the years back into our facilities, our people and communities, and our industry. 
Throughout the chaos of this past year, these sustainable business practices, along with the diversity of our operations and world-class employees, have allowed us to stay steady and stable. Ergon, united by service, driven by solutions.